is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Kudnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Paiu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Rory Miller, author of Living in the Deep Brain, Connecting with Your Intuition. Rory Miller is a 17-year veteran of a metropolitan correctional system. He spent 17 years, including 10 as a sergeant, with the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office in Portland, Oregon. His assignments included booking, maximum security, disciplinary and administrative segregation, and mental health units. He was a corrections emergency response team member for over 11 years and team leader for six. His training has included over 800 hours of tactical training, witness protection, and close quarters handgun training with the local U.S. Marshals, incident command system, instructor development courses, AELE discipline and internal investigations, hostage negotiations and hostage survival, integrated use of force and confrontational simulation instructor, mental health, defensive tactics, including the grapple instructors program, diversity, and supervision. Rory has designed and taught courses including confrontational simulations, uncontrolled environments, crisis communications with the mentally ill, CERT operation and planning, defensive tactics, and use of force for Multnomah County and other local agencies. In 2008, Rory Miller left his agency to spend over a year in Iraq with the Department of Justice ISITAP program as a civilian advisor to the Iraqi correction system. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and college varsity in judo and fencing. He also likes long walks on the beach. His writings have been featured in Lauren Christensen's Fighter's Fact Book 2, The Street, Kanan Wilder's Little Black Book of Violence and the Way to Black Belt. Rory is the author of Meditations on Violence, a Comparison of Martial Arts Training and Real-World Violence, Violence, a Writer's Guide, and Facing Violence. His latest book, Living in the Deep Brain, was published in 2019 by Weird Goat Press. Rory Miller, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. It's fun to be here. How are you guys doing? We're doing great, and we're, uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation for a lot of reasons that we'll get into, but I'm going to ask you our, um, what has become our standard first question to guests the first time they appear on the show, and that's to invite you to um, uh, let your mind go back in memory to uh, childhood and youth. And in reference to the book of yours that we've read for this show, Living in the Deep Brain, Connecting with Your Intuition, and related work you've done in your life uh, as an adult, etc., cetera, um, tell us about any experiences that when you're looking back to childhood and youth, kind of prefigured what your 
work as an adult would come to be. That could be anything. It could be nothing. But uh, does anything pop into your head at this point? A lot. Um, not so much about work, though. It's a... Uh, um, I'm, I'm a writer now. I'm a teacher. Uh, but I actually spent most of my adult life as a jail guard, as a corrections officer and sergeant. There's nothing in your childhood that says, hey, I want to do that when I grow up. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, okay, you guys, you guys are based in California, right? Yeah. Yes. So, okay, so I was raised in the desert parts of Eastern Oregon, spent a lot of time alone, a lot of time listening and smelling and and, and just being alone in, in that desert and that kind of country. And um, it, it makes you think differently than people that are surrounded by noise and traffic and, and constant interaction, constant television, and we didn't have one. So I think that broad strokes is a huge part of, of you know, how I became, you know, who I am. That makes sense, and that comes through in your book uh, as well. Um, was there any particular experience that would kind of encapsulate some of the flavor of what you're what you're pointing to that um, that would be interesting for uh, for our listeners? Uh, oh wow! I don't want to. Okay, once upon a time, um, I was in that environment, and. I read Carlos Castaneda mm -hmm. and it never occurred to me that he was a complete fraud. Um, so he'd had the little comment in there about, you know, yeah, he did the drugs things, but the drugs were only the, for the people that were too weak to do it by themselves. And I thought, I think I'll do all that. I think I'll do all of it. Got and it. Uh, in my, yeah, in my about 12 to 13, I was, spending a lot of time in the desert trying to do strange mystical things. That sounds cool. And so what, um, I guess, I guess pretty weird. There's some weird stuff that happens. Well, if you're uh, comfortable talking about it, uh, uh, it, it figures actually it figures into some stuff you talked about in your book too. So I'm interested if there's anything you're comfortable sharing that uh, came out of that. Uh, it's, it's, oh, um, in, in my professional life, a lot of what I do is about not, is about demystifying stuff that it, it's, it's natural. It's, um, that, sorry. And this is one of the things that there are going to be a lot of pauses in this because I, I think trying to translate things back into words, yeah, but no problem. Um, the, anyway, I usually am really careful not to talk about anything that's not explainable because it, it gives people a reason to not listen to the rest of it. Yeah, you guys get it. So it, so it's one of those, I tend not to, but, um, there's, there's way more things 
that we can explain or put it in another context. I've never spent any time around any kind of indigenous people or people that spend a lot of time in the woods that didn't accept that there are intelligences other than us out there. Got it. So, so when you did all this, uh, practice in the desert, uh, uh, Without necessarily going into specifics, you—it sounds like you uh, connected with some, you know, had direct experience of these intelligences. There were some places. See, now you got me talking about it. Um, there were some places that had, and it became one of my things to look for, that just would have a wall of fear around it, that you had to force yourself to walk through. Mm-hmm. And there was always something interesting. If you could make yourself do that, you always mm-hmm. learn something. And that became one of the fear um, became one of my signs that there was some super deep knowledge there. If I could overcome the fear and get it and it completely changed my relationship to fear. I'm, I'm curious in that experience was the fear something that was in you or was it something that this, uh, this whatever the object of the experience might have been projecting or triggering as a sort of a defensive field to keep you to to encourage you to avoid it 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 felt like a like a defensive field but how would you know yeah right by going through it right well this is this is one but how do you know where it comes from is it something triggered inside you or is it something that's there in that place well, in our, in our spiritual practice, um, hope maintaining that question, the question of how would you know, and, and trying out hypotheses is kind of, is kind of the point. That's, a, that's something that you constantly re- return to in uh, living in the deep brain, yeah. one of the reasons that it resonates for us. But, uh, but what's, what's coming up for me is uh, listening to you talk about these experiences when you were uh, 12 and 13 is the chapter on negative space and significant negatives. That's the title of it, mm-hmm. the chapter. Um, so um, you, you write, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm uh, paraphrasing just slightly. The intuitive brain, um, quote, likes, infor- likes concrete information. It's more programmed to see a hawk than to notice that the squirrels have disappeared, unquote. So, um, and then you also, later you write uh, in that chapter, consciously working with absence helps your intuitive brain recognize absence, Mm -hmm. unquote. So um, I have um, training as as an archaeologist, and and there's a phrase in that field, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. And and so... um, it's like um, how do we how do we use and recognize evidence? You're taught you're you just re- were referring to this emotional response that you were experiencing, and then asking yourself where it was coming from. Was it external to you? Was it internal within you? Maybe both. I don't know. I don't know if there's another alternative. <laughs> But well, I mean, uh, to be to be fair, I never I never asked that question or considered it until you did just now. I had always mm. just assumed it was a field because that's what it felt like. Yeah, got it. Um, yeah, so that 
um, I, one of the reasons to, to work in, and communicate and, and play with other people is because they will ask questions or see things that you missed. Right. Yeah. And, or that you didn't even consider. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So, um, so anyway, uh, it, it, nevertheless, it's this, um, uh, shall we say, absence of external evidence, um, and nevertheless, mm-hmm. um, this internal experience is a, is it seems to me uh, an interesting arena for for those who 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 don't dismiss out of hand. The idea that there's more to life, more to what's going on in the universe than what we're used to looking at. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, and that's a huge can of worms too, because it's it's um because sometimes I think when I, when I'm really in that moment, when I'm really really in my deep brain, um, everything is simpler. There's actually less, not more. Mm that sometimes there's more things because we're trying to break them down beyond where they naturally belong broken down. I, I mean, and you can, you can see the bark and you can see the roots, and you can see the leaves, and you go down to individual cells, but also it's just a tree. And, and the thing, and tying it back to the negative spaces and stuff is um, the way, or one way to put it in, in psychological terms is, is that intuitive brain likes to think in gestalts. Mm. It, it sees the thing and the thing can be a tree or the thing can be a forest or the thing can be a, a pattern of, of interaction between people, but it tends to see it as a whole. Yeah. And sometimes, and, the, and that's one the negative space is one of the few things where I think my conscious brain is better than my unconscious. Um, and that may just be because I'm not good enough at it yet to, to let my unconscious take it over. Um, but my, my intuitive brain will fill in stuff that's not there sometimes to make the pattern more complete, to make it more comprehensible. Yeah. I, I think maybe this would be a good point just for our listeners to uh, get calibrated to talk about the, the model that kind of runs through this book of the, the four different levels of, uh, of brain or consciousness uh, that that you describe, or maybe it's three levels. I guess. Well, it's it's three it's three brains, but four orders of yes. assessment. It, right. Yeah. So let, let's let's just uh, just let's get that out of the way, just to kind of ground the conversation, so that when we refer to these terms, there's uh, the description is clear. So let, let's start with the the three brains, which is a, a fairly classic concept. So how do you how do you describe yeah. those? For me, the, the triumph brain is the uh, lizard, monkey, and human. And the, and the science of this is terrible, but, it, but as a model, it works really, really beautifully. Um, your lizard brain is your, is your hind brain. It cares about your survival. It's plugged into your senses. It's you as a physical animal. Um, and that's not the same as, as Freud's id. It's, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, your monkey brain is the one that's always worried what, about what people will think and uh, what people are going to say and whether you fit in the tribe, whether anyone likes you, and it, it deals with your emotions and your, your tribal balancing. 
and the human brain solves problems. It's, it's the one that actually um, uses tools, uses logic, but it's also the one that the monkey brain tends to make do your rationalizations to. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why people who are super smart can be, can fool themselves so easily is because their rationalizations are so good. Yeah. And actually I want to, I want to dwell on that point for a moment because uh, you describe this really nicely in the book that the more often than not, the rationalizations of the human brain uh, of, of the, or the, uh, yeah, the, the, as you call it, the human brain yeah. is really serving the purpose of providing a sort of a uh, post hoc explanation for well, justification, yeah, justification for something is. that the uh, yeah. monkey brain did, or potentially even the uh, lizard brain, but probably more typically the monkey brain. So we do something, we make a choice out of an emotional response that we may not even be consciously aware of, but then we come up with a an explanation for it that sounds very reasonable, why that, that was the right choice all along. So yeah, I, I thought you put that sometimes. Yeah, I, I thought you I thought you put that well. And it, it was interesting to yeah. me also that there's even even in like um, split consciousness uh, research and uh, really fundamental research with the brain where you're dealing with dysfunctional mm-hmm. brains for the uh, corpus callosum is split that you can have someone identify something or take an action, uh, you know, uh, that's related to one side of the brain and then ask the ask the person why they did it. And they'll come up with this complete fabrication that has, you know, that is so clearly uh, fabricated, but there, there, it's just like the machine does that. The brain's programmed to do that. It's like a, an explanation engine. When my first, exposure that uh, years ago when I was going through um, going through university, I took a psychology course, took several of them. And at that time, the whole right brain, left thing, left brain thing was just huge. So there was a whole bunch of, of research on it. And one of the, one of the studies that we had to read in class was about a group that got a dozen identical shirts. I can't remember the exact number and had people told the, the, subjects that they were all made by different manufacturers so to pick out the best and the the researchers really interested to see whether they pick one out from the right or left visual field but what struck me about it wasn't that everyone picked the best but that everyone had a reason why theirs was the best why it was the best and it had to be completely fabricated completely post hoc that that was the first time i really started thinking how much people are um yeah rationalizing not it not making decisions so much as justifying decisions after the fact so so um, that piece of history yeah yeah yeah, yeah no um uh, uh, but I, what i want to do is ask you to relate it to um your own practical exploration of of uh the reality of these things because you're making a claim in the book um, that, uh, that intuition and the deep brain have, have, have certain properties and, and qualities. And, and so, and then you're using this language to kind of, um, 
clarify how that how that how that works and and then offer people suggestions about how to verify that for themselves. So I'm wondering how how you verified this stuff for yourself. I mean, was there a time was there a like a a, a time when you first asked yourself how to think about this? Um, was it before this, you know, exposure to these ideas that you just outlined? Was it after that? Was it simultaneously with it? How, how did that work? It, it's, um, there's, so when did I start thinking this way versus when I started realizing other people didn't think this way versus when I tried to create a language for it or very, um, I think, uh, and I don't know how much of the other stuff that, that I've written that you guys have read, but one of the things about a lot of the subject matter I work with is trying to put language to stuff that people have seen and dealt with all the time. Because once mm -hmm. you put language to it, then you can start actually manipulating it and predicting it. Um, the starting, starting from there, starting from that shirt experiment, and then realizing that you could predict most of your friend's behavior, and it's a scale. Some people can't. Some people can with everybody, and some with a few. But almost everyone listening to this has one or two friends that they can predict their behavior better. And their friend can predict their own behavior. And part of that, you know, going to the positive, positivist part is because you're seeing actual objective behavior, so you know what they do. But they're constantly listening to the bull. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to use bad words because you're going to put this on radio. <laughs> but they're constantly listening to, to the rationalizations in their head, and they're believing them. And so people believe this big, long narrative about themselves that doesn't necessarily match reality. Um, anyway, but that really got me realizing how little of what people say or think about themselves is actually accurate in any way. It's almost the rationalizations, the narrative, the story, whatever you want to call it, is more real to them, to most people, than their actual actions and their actual experience and their actual life. That's putting it really well. And, that, so, and, and then the last piece, I think, of this is, um, and I, I think I put this in the introduction, but I woke up one morning. I, I normally do stuff in the self-defense world, and I woke up one morning, and everyone in self-defense world says, trust your intuition. And I thought, hey, has anyone ever written an article on how to train your intuition, how to make it better? And it's like, and I thought it would be a short article, and I pumped out thirty thousand words in in ten days. It just, it just was this huge psychic vomit hmm. of stuff, and that that's what forced me to put like into words some of the, some of the stuff the the um the levels thing was just trying to put that into words. So is and is that was that output then? Uh, that's the the genesis of living in the deep brain. Yeah, it was, it was supposed to just be an article and yeah. Well, I, I, the, or an interesting point that's coming up for me, uh, you know, hearing you say it and you do, you do talk about this in the, uh, at the beginning of the book, but, um, but what I think, uh, what's interesting to me is I had to meet with someone who became 
who, who I recognized as my, as my spiritual teacher pretty quickly, um, who was talking about just the sort of things that you're referring to, um, who, who had some, uh, who, who had this attitude of exploration, but it wasn't until he met his spiritual teacher that things like this fell into place. Um, and, and you could, um, pull this stuff to get, and he could pull this stuff together. And when he pulled it, he, you know, talked about it and demonstrated things to me. That was a way that I could come to grasp uh, much of what you write about in this book. So, um, so that, so it's interesting to me that, that um, what I'm getting from you is that, um, is that you have gone through and, and I, I'm, Maybe I'm projecting a little bit here, but you but you tell me whether um, whether this is right or not. Um, it's basically it, it, in many ways it's kind of your the words you put to the experience experiences you created for yourself in order uh, to be able to make sense of of how you are approaching things differently than the other people you were just referring to who who have uh, sort of, who incessantly believe their own bull. BS. We can say BS. Oh, I think we can say bull, too. Oh, nice. Just, just leave off the second uh, okay. syllable there. <laughs> so does that make, does that, uh, does that make sense? I mean, uh, how, or respond to that, if like, you will. How did you get there? I, I'm, I'm really enjoying... <laughs> You, ha you have the same types of pauses that I do in the middle of the sentences, which makes me think that you think a lot like I do. Because um, it's these little micro pauses as you try to work out how to put stuff into words. Cause, and, and this is the thing. A lot of this is not word stuff. Words distance you from it. It's, it. It was never meant to be described so much as experienced. And that's one of the most messed up things about the whole seekers in general is that they're, they're trying to achieve something while distancing themselves from it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, <laughs> That's nicely put too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, yeah it, it's one of those, my, my normal reaction to most seekers, if you've been seeking something for 10 years and you haven't found it, you're hiding it from yourself because freaking turtles do it. It's not hard. <laughs> um, yes, it, got it. And, yeah, and, and so, so, um, trying to put it into words is trying to because the trying brain model really doesn't work for this intuitive brain idea it, it's it, unless you add a fourth level that's deeper than all of them that's just you know it it's just the thing itself mm -hmm. fully integrated oh, that's a, and, that's a... and, and so maybe that's possibly the better model Go ahead. Well, yeah, just just so you have a, a sense of where we're coming from in the language around the spiritual tradition that we've been trained in, we'll, we'll talk about the three brains. So there's the moving and instinctive center, there's the emotional center or the emotional and feeling center, and the uh, intellectual center. And the what I loved about the book was actually your focus on the instinctive center was like some of the clearest material I've found in terms of really 
demystifying that that function. But the fourth piece uh, that's uh, that I think you're getting at isn't so much the uh, fourth brain as much as it is the appropriate harmonization of all three of those brains together, such that they they function in a in a totality. And th does that like resonate with you in terms of what you're of how you experience it? Like if if, ev if everything is balanced and working together and feeding each other, then the t the the sum of the parts is uh, something unique. Yes, very much so. It um, there, there's no when you're in that moment in that place. There, there's no sense of self, and and that's that's almost exactly the wrong word. But almost all of our um, when they're integrated like that, there's no friction, and when there's no friction, there's no sensation. It, it, yeah. It's probably not making any sense. Oh, at all. No, no, it makes no, perfect no, sense. Like, clear, clear to us. Anyway. Yeah, the, like um, uh, our own teacher okay. used to describe it like a, uh, you know, if an organ is working well, it doesn't call attention to itself. Mm. So, like, if your stomach is That's, digesting yes. perfectly, you don't you don't notice it. You only notice it when it hurts. But he, then he then he he would draw the analogy, and so your brain or your intellectual center is like really broken. <laughs> Because it's constantly calling attention to itself, but you know, yeah, through a, yes, yes, yeah. So through this process of integration, Sorry, excited. Go ahead. yeah, through this process of integration, when it when it settles down finally, then then there's a sort of a, a functioning totality or a functioning human being. But we're not quite, you know, most of us in this society aren't quite in that state, and that's that's, you know, clearly the focus of. Uh, your book is is a, a methodology of helping to bring that harmonization about. Yeah, just just pieces though. I know that there's there's got to be a lot more out there. Um, again, within the community where I spend the most time in, intuition is a hand wavy thing. Mm -hmm. It's like you know, trust your intuition, trust your gut, and they, you know, and there are people that have bad enough experiences that they absolutely should not trust their intuition. Their intuition was adapted for a place that's that's not like the place they're in now. So, yeah. someone raised in a really really toxic environment knows their their intuition is tuned to a toxic environment. Outside of the toxic environment, environment they'll make mistakes. Um, so there, but I, I'm there has to be more better stuff out there. So anything I wrote is for, for my community, which is just a baby steps part of this. Well, I, uh, okay, I, I, get, I get why you're putting it that way, but, but you know what? Uh, um, it's actually not baby steps. Most of it's not baby steps, uh, except insofar as it's fundamental steps. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, the, the, the connotation of the word baby or baby steps makes it sound as if this is something that we all should already have done. And in one sense, that's probably true, but the reality of the world that we're, and, and the specific environments within the world that we're born into um, does not support this. So, um, so it's like, uh, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, 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 I'm kind of agreeing. It's, it's one of my contentions, though. It's that this is not this is not unnatural. This is more natural than what we're doing now. But we work so hard on being unnatural that it's become easier than just being in your head or not in your head is the wrong thing that integration should be the natural default value. Yeah. And we work hard to make it not. And, and so I, I absolutely agree with everything you said, the way it works in the real world as it is now, but something about that strikes me as very out of balance that, that this is the stuff that should never have to be taught because every child starts here. Yeah. Well, I, I, that that makes sense, and and yet, so so uh, you know the the spiritual the general spiritual tradition um, that we are from, that we have you know the most grounding in is called the Fourth Way, which right. this guy named Gurdjieff brought to the West in the early 20th century, and so um, there's a kind of um, analysis, if you will. Um, that that he that he brought and and you could in one sense you could summarize it as and and you even put it this way at one point in your book uh, it's like the human brain is very is the new kid on the block that's the phrase you use in your in your book I'm, I'm remembering it's the new kid on the block in this concatenation of brains of lizard monkey and then human and because it's the new kid on the block it's not um, it's not integrated. Number one, that's one possibility. Another possibility that occurs to me from my training in anthropology is that when we started to get large aggregations of human beings together, that the cultural manifestations that had never existed before created conditions such that um, these miswirings, if you will, kind of emerged and became endemic in human, in human experience or for, for, for so many people. And, and your situation, it strikes me, that you've described, both in your book and, and right now in this, in this uh, conversation, is that you were not as um, uh, immersed Growing up in a, in a, in this desert where you didn't have TV and you were in the natural world a lot, it sounds like, um, mm -hmm. it's, it, you had a, a different experience than most people do. Does that, is that, does that track? Yeah, it, it, it does. It's, I'm not sure how, um, you know, a, a kid that's constantly bombarded with TV and and now screens and smartphones. Um, oh, one of the things, um, uh, my wife, who is wonderful and lovely and smarter than me, uh, a lot of the um, the different states are going on lockdown. You guys are in California, so you're on lockdown now, whatever yeah. they want to call yes. it. Yes. Um, she was pointing out that most people have never been alone with themselves for that long. Yeah. If they didn't have the distractions, they they would either go nuts or or actually start breaking into their deeper selves. One of the two. But the um, 
almost all the complaints I've heard about, and you know, when, when uh, radio show that I listened to sometimes, they didn't think any of this was real or serious until it shut off their sports that they like to watch. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Right. And and when when I the image in my head when I think about how distracted people need to be and um. The, the the image in my head is imagination scavengers. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They they aren't thinking of of imagination or creativity as a as a productive or an active process. They think it's a passive process. They want someone to you know throw them some music or throw them some sports or throw them some movies. The way a scavenger waits for something to die. I love that phrase. I, I'm I'm going to rip that phrase off. Thank you very much. Yeah, that, that I mean, it, it is it is so interesting when you consider the distinction of like actually participating in a sport versus watching it or making music rather than listening to it. Uh, you know, these things are practices that force us and require us to be in our bodies in a very different way. Whereas in that scavenger mm-hmm. mode, it's like uh, we're leaving our bodies, and we're passive. We're yeah. we're not in. It feels like we're engaging with the world because our senses are being overwhelmed, but we aren't actually engaged. We're enga- and what we are engaged with is completely artificial. We're living in someone else's imagination for that moment. Well, and but you make an interesting distinction in uh, living in the deep brain. You, you, you point out that when you're reading a, reading a, a fiction, a story, a book, mm-hmm. um, it's, not, it's not that you're not living in someone's, you don't put it this way in the book, but it's not that you're not living in someone else's imagination, except you're co-creating it by reading, by the act of reading. Right. You know, I, 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 I was, go ahead. Well, it, it's one of those, um, People have this idea that, and where I was trying to go with that, people have this idea that they can't do stuff. Um, one, one of the things, uh, when, when I was working the jail, there were a lot of force, um, force encounters. And it's, and it's why I wrote the stuff I wrote, and it's why I do what I do now, was because of that reputation at that time. But there were some things where you could be in a fight and you just, you know, you just let your body deal with the fight. You aren't really paying attention. You're composing the report in your head. And people that have had, you know, their, their one or two schoolyard fights or whatever, you know, immediately say that's impossible, but everyone does it driving. You know, your first time driving, you probably, you know, you, you practice doing the gear shift and everything, but the first time you actually tried to do it, I can almost guarantee you killed the car. You know, or yeah. you, you couldn't pay attention, and now and now people drive and they hold conversations and eat. It's the same thing, and it, and and the thing about reading is, if you were if you're reading the way a kid has to learn the alphabet, you know, if you're still drawing the letters, but we get so good at it that we can do this incredibly fantastic thing in our heads, based off these squiggles of line, and not even be aware of what our eyes are doing. Not not even being consciously aware of the squiggles anymore. The individual well, letters and individual words. 
Exactly. Amazing at stuff. Well, I'll just relate a recent experience. I, um, I've, I've loved science fiction since I was a kid. And I, uh, and now, nowadays you can, you can get decent stuff in, you know, um, movie or, or TV form, right? But I'm still mostly a reader. In any event, um, there's this, um, uh, science fiction TV series and it's based on a, on a science fiction series of books called The Expanse. And, and I just happened to carry a book in with me to the, to the bank and the teller says, Oh, I love that series. And, and it turned out he, and I had been introduced to it from the TV and I went back and read the book, read the book. Have, I'm in the process of reading the books and loving the books more than the TV. And, but, but, um, I had, I had just started then. And this guy at the bank teller was telling me, Oh, but you know, the problem with the t- he had read the books first. The problem was for him that the it's not just that the um, uh, the visualization in the movie form was different than his imagination, but it was also he didn't put it exactly this way. But what I got from him was that it was less rich than his own imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that points yeah. to this 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 creative process that we, that we do when we get good at things in the way that you're talking about. Does that make sense? It does. I think, I think that reading probably because of that world construction is, is the middle ground as opposed to getting the entire thing, the visuals, the sights. Um, yeah, you have to do something. It's making sense. No, it does. It, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, when you're reading, it's it's not completely passive. It's not completely passive. You, you yeah, your your imagine your uh, your imagination, uh, your sensory imagination has to be activated. And if I if I watch uh, a TV show, it's a level of passivity that's uh, like complete, almost complete. I, I suppose the next level will be virtual reality entertainment, but we're not quite there yet. But watching a TV show like the one we're describing is completely, I can be hypnotized and it's passive. When I read the books, there's a whole active process that's going on uh, of not only just creating the world, but I'm also just more aware of my body, you know, even if I'm holding the book and stuff like that. that there's, it, it just feels like it's a, there's a greater level of engagement. Definitely. So I think that goes to the question that you're, you know, you're, you're describing this, uh, the passivity of modern life with respect to practicing the development of intuition. And I'm wondering, you, you mentioned this in the book and you talk about this, uh, uh, maybe you could speak a little bit more like, uh, maybe the question I would ask you is, uh, can intuition be trained? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, and, and that's what I was trying to do in most of the book was to give some exercises to help. Um, see, I, I wanted to back up a second because one of, one of my defaults, I have a friend that I argue with about this, is that intuition is very difficult to develop in the city. Um, 
her argument, and her, her name is Beverly Baker, and she runs classes in the Los Angeles area that she calls Asphalt Anthropology. <laughs> and they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, but they're basically uh, uh, people-watching courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and her contention, and we argue about this all the time whenever we get together, is that cities develop your intuition just as well, but in a different way. You, you start reading streets the way that, you know, other people read the forest. And I get that, again, because working in jail, you, you had the same idea of being able to read a dorm. Um, it, but it just, it just strikes me as very definitely true, but really hard for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, so. I, well, one of, the, one of the elements that when you describe that, that feels to me missing, you know, to use the language in the book is, you speak a lot about how uh, imminent danger, like real physical danger, tends to be an ingredient that forces or causes that lizard brain or let's say the instinctive center to activate. And mm-hmm. I think you get that more in a natural setting uh, because there's a kind of unpredictability, whereas in a city setting, I mean, I guess you could go into, you know, sketchy neighborhoods and things like that and maybe recreate this, but it, it, but it's still something that's constructed by people. So there's a level of kind of uh, structure that I think the human brain is able to navigate and override that uh, doesn't quite get you to that primitive level. Would you, does that make sense to you? I it does, but I, I don't know if it's right. I okay, because um, that's that's kind of my instinctive mm-hmm. feeling. Um, but at the same time, on another level, there's there's nothing that's truly artificial, mm-hmm. right? Even even if someone is completely plugged into virtual reality, there it's still there. They still see it. They still react to it. Um, I think I think that there's a disconnect between like you talk about danger, um, the, the basic necessities of life in a city environment are at minimum one step removed. You aren't going to get your own food. I mean, you're going to go down to the store and get it, but someone else is going to kill it for you. Someone else is going to harvest it, wash it, whatever. Um, so you don't get the idea of how much work it takes not to be hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, someone else removes your waste. You, you don't even do bury that yourself. And, it, and, and just this really, really long list of things that all of life, and I'm talking organic life, trees and, and birds and flowers and humans, um, are all based on becomes an abstraction. So, so the basic elements of the universe, basic elements of life in a city are abstract things. And so for me, I think that, that that feels like a level of disconnect from, from truth. And mm-hmm. I'll just leave that there for now without trying to find it. Um, but to someone living in the city, that the way it is, is their truth, is the truth they have to live with and adjust to. So that, that feeling about they're separated from truth is where I agree with you. Um, but I have to acknowledge that the truth they have is the truth that they have. 
yeah with that did that make any sense at all yeah no it makes sense i think i think uh maybe what i was saying more is not that they were separated from truth but they're separated from uh danger or the sort of imminent risk in a way that's that i think you're you're <laughs> capturing you're capturing that because i i mean and i'm aware of this for myself uh because I, I was feeling this coming up when you talk of, in the book about uh exercises for developing the intuition involving like going out on a survival uh, session, but going out where you don't take enough food or something like that. Cause that, that would confront me with a mm -hmm. set of experiences that uh, are very alien to the way that I've been raised. It would be and, very and that's, real. That's one of the things I find fascinating is, is we actually live in a world where the majority of people, not, not, I'll say a country, not the whole world, have never actually been hungry. They, they've missed a meal or two, or they, they think that, you know, I feel hungry is the same as actually being hungry. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's huge points for doing great as a civilization, yay us. Um, but our ancestors would not have been able to relate to us in any way. They, they just would not be able to see how we think. Yes. And that gets into, um, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons I quit reading fiction a while ago um, was I, I was reading these scenes of, of someone trying to, you know, someone, they're, they're trying to kill me and it has all the emotional resonance of, I, you know, I had a pimple on prom night. And realized that to that author, that pimple on prime night was the most horrible thing that he or she had ever experienced. So therefore, the most horrible thing that can be experienced. And they were trying to milk that to, to make their fiction feel real. And weirdly, it probably felt incredibly real to them and incredibly real to any of their audience where that was the most horrible thing that ever happened to them. And what I'm getting from you is that uh, to you, it, it feels emotionally dead or yeah. emotion, emotionally uh, artificial. It, it, it's it, going, yeah, going, going back to the people on the screen, they feel that, that connecting with a character on the screen or playing a character that they're playing, um, that, or, oh, we had someone back when I was working for the sheriff's office um, try to get bereavement leave for a pet because her pet was just important to her as someone else's children were to them. Yes. That and that's become more, uh, I mean, in my lifetime, that didn't exist and now it does right. exist. Right, that's, that's in modern the American States. society. Right. It, they never, um, my older brother died when he was 22. Um, my sister lost uh, her youngest son when he was in his early 20s. And seeing a mother who's lost a child and seeing someone at a funeral say, I know how you feel, I lost my dog, is just unbelievable to me. No argument. Yeah, that, that, I mean, it's, it's interesting as we talk um, you know, I, one of the words that comes up to me, and this resonates again with our own spiritual tradition, is the uh, 
authenticity because it seems it seems like you're describing a, an authenticity of life an authenticity of body like what it means to be in a human body in this world where there are real there are real experiences and there's real challenges and dangers and we've created for ourselves a social network and a social structure where people are uh uh i i guess separated from that separated from that reality and consequently the these other the realities that are created by these other uh brains like the human level or the monkey level in particular uh take on a disproportionate kind of center of gravity for people's experience yeah most people spend most time in their monkey brain because that's where the most of their problems are the our ancestors took care of most of the lizard problems yeah but the but you point out and this is this is what's interesting to me is um uh you can i mean the, the lizard the lizard brain ha, can be trained in a way uh and maybe maybe my question to you is you know when you talk about this training it seemed to be like you're talking about integrating it with the uh other brains in a way because i think you even described pretty clearly that the lizard brain in and of itself doesn't really think much of training because it's very immediate and training training is kind of this uh construct but if it but if it can have a real experience of the benefits of training all of a sudden it kind of wakes up a little bit and is able to establish a connection that didn't exist before to maybe something in the human brain well trying to back engineer that um most people unless they're they've had enough experience to calm down can't remember their training when things get real anyway um one of the reasons that we were taught and you see how old school I am uh for first aid we were taught RABC um responses airway breathing circulation but that became a mantra cuz one of the things to break the freeze is to do two things so you script out the two things you know check the respiration check the airway and then you're in your mode and you flow through um but most people without a ritual like that um can't remember any of their training the first time something really really terrible happens the you know your first fight it doesn't matter how many black belts you have you tend to you tend to fall apart cuz it's not the same um one of so trying to back engineer that um what i think happens is your lizard takes over because this is a life or death situation and it wants to do what has worked for the last, you know, 4 billion years which is freeze and if that doesn't work run if that doesn't work you know do some kind of flailing fight but it doesn't it doesn't have any reason to trust your experience but trust the evolved reasons and or the evolved um answers and what i find i don't think the lizard really trusts your training until its instincts fail and mm-hmm. it realizes that terrible things are going to happen like you're going to die so it decides to let you try the training and if it doesn't make things worse then it lets you try a little bit more and after a couple of experiences of that then the lizard takes that training and goes no this is mine now 
and and you start moving with with all of your animal perfection but with your training as well and it's it's really powerful you know but, boy, but my my best okay well, I was I, gonna... say my, my best guess is it takes a, a it takes a failure of instinct before before the part of your brain that works on instinct is willing to bring the training under the same umbrella we need to take a short break at the hour you are listening to the mystical positivist I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Rory Miller. Rory is the author of Living in the Deep Brain, Connecting with Your Intuition. He's a 17-year veteran of the Portland Metropolitan Correctional System, and in 2008, he left his agency to spend over a year in Iraq with the Department of Justice ISITAP program as a civilian advisor to the Iraqi correction system. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and college varsities in judo and fencing. Rory is also the author of Meditations on Violence, a comparison of martial arts training and real-world violence. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Rory Miller, author of Living in the Deep Brain, Connecting with Your Intuition. Rory Miller is a 17-year veteran of the Portland Metropolitan Correctional System, in 2008, Rory left his agency to spend over a year in Iraq with the Department of Justice ISITAP program as a civilian advisor to the Iraqi correction system. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and college varsities in judo and fencing. Rory is also the author of Meditations on Violence, a comparison of martial arts training and real-world violence. So one of the things that came up for me as I was reading that description in the book and it kind of is coming up for me now is how in uh, earlier societies there are rites of passage like there's uh, vision quests uh, there's uh, difficulties that you know there there's sort of ritualized difficulties and dangers that people are put through and I I think I didn't realize uh, as clearly as, as until I read you know, the way you describe this, what what a critical developmental step that really was for someone because it it was really connecting their instinctive side with the uh, their personhood so that they could come back into society in a way that was actually beneficial to the community and. In saying that, I'm also reflecting on uh, comments I've heard from others and observed myself that one of the things that's missing for young adults today are really these kinds of rites of passage that give that kind of signaling at a much more fundamental level to someone that uh, something has shifted, that we just don't have it now. So it's no wonder people feel kind of restless and disoriented and uh, unsatisfied. 
I think um, when, even when we do do some kind of rites of passage, it tends to have no teeth. It's just a show because we've forgotten it was actually supposed to do something. It was supposed to be a tool. It was a, you know, if, if we just want to have a you're coming of age party, then it's just a party. It doesn't mean anything. The the trials or the ordeals or, um, or even just, you know, your first hunting trip was a huge rite of passage because you were actually actively doing something and learning something, a tool that was going to keep you going for the rest of your life. You said something else brilliant in there that, um, that I wanted to riff on, and I forgot it already. Too many concussions. Well, I maybe the I'm I'm not sure. I, I think the the point I was reflecting on is as we talk about modern society, I, I I think you hit you kind of went on with that that the the lack of the teeth is actually pretty critical, and as a result, people don't really have that experience. So, agreed. Um, I mean, I, 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 I agree with what you guys are, are saying. Uh, I, I might put it slightly differently, just in terms of um, uh, uh, a powerful ritual does involve some aspect of the wizard, but um, uh, that can be approached in different ways. And so I want to I want to read something by you, Rory. Um, um, that that I learned from my own my own teacher, and that is that that stress. I mean, the the proposal to test was stress shuts down what you're calling the monkey brain and the human brain. And different people, I mean, different stresses do that for different people. Um, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's it's the stuff that you mention in your book, like doing. I guess um, uh, paragliding. Uh, well, yeah, well, I mean, stuff, stuff, stuff that that triggers triggers uh, survival stuff. But um, but I'm thinking right now, and what I run want to run by you is the idea that if you have, for whatever reason, if your monkey brain has developed a fear of speaking to to crowds or groups. Um, and you put yourself out on a stage or something, some other context like that, um, that's going to shut down those other things. And, you know, my own experience as a kid was, well, then I would freeze, um, as you just pointed out mm -hmm. earlier. But what I, f what I found was that in conjunction with the various meditative techniques, uh, some of them not unlike some of the stuff in, in uh, your book, Living in the Deep Brain. Um, if I would deliberately do that and pay attention to what was going on in me, observe, and then return to it again and again, um, it was a kind of, a kind of training uh, and changed my relationship to that kind of that kind of experience such that, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a vastly different 
kind of kind of um, endeavor for me now to speak to groups. Uh, so, um, so it seems to me that that is another way of getting at uh, training intuition. Would you agree with that? And and does that bring up anything else for you? If so, and if not, let me know. Okay, no, so run this through. Uh, uh, lizard trumps monkey, monkey trumps human. So it's one of those fear of death, then, yeah, the monkey and the human are both offline. But fear of death is not on the table, but fear of humiliation is, then the monkey also tends to shut down the human. And right. that, that's why when people are embarrassed, when they think they're going to be ridiculed, they aren't rational. Um, that level of fear. The, what you described is a really, I would call it desensitization, you know, putting yourself into the, into the environment and then working out, you know, I didn't die, nothing too bad happened, this is not as scary as I thought it was, and then doing it again and again and again until you get a different experience of it. Um, the thing that's in there, whenever your monkey is going into a place where a lot of people are looking at it, it's, it's terribly afraid of being humiliated or kicked out of the tribe rocking the boat, you know, all, all the things that would, that would kill a, a chimpanzee, the, the being ostracized. And, and that can feel like an existential fear. It can feel like a huge fear in a lot of ways because so few people have experience with their lizard brain. It can feel more dangerous than a physical threat because the physical threat's abstract. We don't have enough experience with it. Um, so within that, the desensitizing you described, or I'm calling it desensitizing, what you described, mm -hmm. is a way to let your human guide your monkey brain into what the real risks are. And it's not, um, and, and, and let it grow into, into truth instead of into its imaginary, this is what I'm afraid will happen. Because most of those are, and the word we aren't supposed to use, mostly imaginary consequences. But our monkey brain does that to keep us at our own level, to keep us at homeostasis. Um, so that, that could be a really huge part of integrating those two levels of your brain, using your human and your monkey working together. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to throw out, because um, there's a piece of that that's not under your control. And it's, it's one of the... Um, one of the things that wires to your brain hard is not what you rationalize, what you think, what you plan, but what's punished or rewarded. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're in a group that will punish you for breaking out, you know, you've always been one of us, but now you're going to stand up in front of us. And if you're in that group that punishes you for that, that becomes harder and harder to do. If you come into sure. a group where it's rewarded, it becomes easier and easier. And, and, and that's one of the things we have to, sorry, as a teacher, it's one of the things we have to watch because we're, we are way too often punishing people all the time and don't even realize it. That's a, that's a very good point. I want to get back to that in a minute, but, but I also want to both agree with you and, and expand slightly. I agree with you about the desensitization, right. but uh, in addition to that, I would add that, you know, I, I, I mentioned that, um, you know, some of the some of the meditative practices can actually where you're actually paying attention to your body during the experience of putting yourself 
into a situation where you're being desensitized. It's it maybe maybe the way to look at it is it can speed up um, the um, the process of realizing that uh, the monkey fears were if not groundless, at least uh, nuanced um, and, and not, um, not entirely um, one-sided. Does that make sense? I, I, I think it's exactly what you said before. And um, I, I wanted by desensitize, desensitizing, I wasn't thinking about minimizing it, that at all. That was, if I, if I wanted to, Describe better be mindful desensitizing. You're actually, like you said, going into meditative state, paying attention to your body, seeing what the results are, what's real, what's not. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to sound like I was minimizing that at all because that was actually a very, what would I call it, sophisticated technology for what we're talking about. So, but so let yeah, me I mean, let, well, let me step yes, in because I because what I what I hear you saying, Rory. Or what I, I in your response to Rob is that you're suggesting that Rob is describing a process of uh, you might say train if if I use the term intuition, it's training the intuition of the monkey mind through that that uh, nuanced process of desensitization. But you're suggesting that it's different in kind from the training of the instinctive center. And that that and it's a di and there's a different. No, I'm not. Okay, so well, are you so are you then let me be clear because it seems like the um, the actual physical death possibility or the survival issues at a raw body survivability level trigger a a functioning that's different uh, it has a different location if you will than the um, the existential threat of uh, humiliation at the emotional center level and that it's not that one is better than the other okay, i know where it, we are then okay so so play it back to me let me see let me see if uh okay so because um to me the the monkey lizard human and the intuitive brain are separate models and the, the intuitive brain would be the integration of all three, the way we uh, talked about a little okay. bit before, which okay. thank you, by the way, I'm going to be using that forever. So the exercise that, um, that Rob just described, that's Rob, right? Cause I'm doing yeah. this by voices. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Um, it would, would be working heavily on integrating the human and the monkey, which is, which is a yeah. big part of creating that, that continued intuitive brain. So no, not 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 a separate thing. Okay. But the lizard's going to be sleeping through almost all of that. Got it. Okay. So that's a, now I think we're uh, I, I'm clear on what you're saying and, and what Rob's saying. And actually, I didn't I didn't quite make that connection. Uh, I appreciate that because you're you're playing it back to me now. That I had been sort of thinking of intuition in your language as really something an attribute of the. Uh, uh, lizard brain, but really intuition is the product of the integration of all three brains. I, I think and, so. I think that's the best, uh, best description. Yeah. Thank no, you guys no, for that. Well, that, no, that works for that. That's, that, that helps me because then it's like the, 
it, it, it speaks to more proper functioning or, or, you know, when the intuition is going, then, it, then you're a human and you're, you're silent as it were. Well, let me, let me add another, just, just, just yeah. one slight addition to this um, and see, see what you have to say about it, Rory. Is it, I, I agree with you that the, that um, uh, what, what I was talking about can be mostly subsumed in this monkey human relation, monkey human brain relationship. Uh, training, if you will, but it seems to me that uh, and 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 the the paradigmatic to, to return to my own experience for a moment, the paradigmatic kind of uh, moment for me that demonstrated how completely overwhelmed I was was in high school when I won an award and had to actually walk up to the front of the room with hundreds of people in this room and accept an award and return to my seat. And it was, I could barely move. I could just barely move. So, um, so what I'm, what I'm, uh, the, just the slight tweak that I would suggest, and tell me if you think I'm right about this, um, is that, is that actually, and you, you point this out in the book at a number of points, humans cannot exist alone. There's a reason for the monkey brain. Mm. And, um, and when, when, uh, when there's a sense that complete expulsion from the group, whether it's groundless or not, is present, that does trigger the um, lizard brain to the extent that I could barely move, physically move, you know, when I'm supposed to be going up and gratefully accepting this award <laughs> and instead I have my head down you know I can't raise my head up you know it's like it was like this real thing um, and I don't think that was just the monkey so that's that's the that's the slight um, tweak I would I would offer or suggest and let me know if you agree maybe it, um, it, I don't disagree it, it's one of the you know, understanding that we're working with a model, not a, not a reality. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I I think that I think that the fear coming from the monkey can be just as debilitating as the fear coming from the lizard. Okay. Um, you know, and it, it's it's one of those you know the most in a lot of societies the greatest punishment is to be ostracized because no matter how good you are, you're still going to die on your own. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, at least in my mind and my model, that doesn't mean that the lizard is the only one capable of, of, you know, if you're experiencing, you know, real, real deep fear, that doesn't always mean the lizard's there. I think the monkey can do that too. Okay. Fair, fair enough. I could be completely wrong about that. Well, I, part of the reason I'm, I think this is a great uh, question to chew on is it gets to what you mean by the lizard brain experientially. Like you've described in situations, like particularly forced situations where the uh, uncontrolled or unexpected violence is a possibility. I mean, that's, that's like a very immediate body thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it seems like that that's, that calls into play a different uh, level of functioning than um, a social issue. 
it, it doesn't mean that one's better or more real or anything. It's just different. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of wondering from you the, how you see or how you experience the feel of that difference. I actually tend to feel the social fear way more deeply than I feel the existential fear. Or when I think I'm about to die, um, I, I get a, a, a dump of adrenaline, but it's cold. There's, um, it, it's very immediate and it tends to plug me into the moment completely. Um, when I get monkey fear, it, it still has that adrenaline effect, but it has a lot more of the, uh, it has a, a worry element to it that's not there when the lizard triggers. It has a, generally when it's a lizard problem, I'm dealing with what's right there in front of me. When it's a monkey problem, I'm, I'm dealing with all the possibilities of all the ways it could go wrong. Hmm. Okay. So, so that's, that's, I mean, you've used terms like, uh, uh, you know, like danger is uh, uh, low time or it's like immediate. It's, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the same kind of sense of duration. Um, yeah. And, well, and I tend not to think about the future. I don't, um, in, in a force instant, I, I never planned more than the first two moves because I knew everything on that was chaos. And I just had to trust my, my body is how I thought about it. My hind brain, really, I just had to trust my body to deal with it. It's because if I was, if I thought I'd be too slow to, to have any hope. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to, I'd like to delve into some other stuff in the book, um, at this point. And, um, there's a, there's a series of chapters at the end that, um, refer to toxic intuition. Um, one of them is actually a, uh, uh, the one piece that, uh, you didn't author. I guess you invited um, your uh, colleague to, uh, yeah, um, to add this stuff. So, and the and and he has a principle at the beginning of his chapter entitled "Garbage in, garbage out." That's actually a phrase that that Stuart and my uh, teacher used to use. Um, and his discussion of of impression food, and that's a phrase. Malcolm's from, that is. Malcolm, yeah, yeah, that Malcolm used in in this chapter uh, that you include in the book, and um, and uh, our teacher Robert used to use the same exact phrase as I said, but but the um, uh, the point he was making, he would frame it in terms of the fourth way language about impression food, and that is that all the impressions we experience are like food can be viewed as food for the being. And Malcolm makes, um, makes a point about cultivating awareness of the effects that the impression food of, say, watching a movie or reading a particular book or whatever it happens to be, but a lot of the, the sort of um, indirect um, 
uh, kind of impression food that we get in our in our in our uh, our many cultural manifestations. How to make how to change one's relationship to to being you could use the word mindful. I'm not very fond of that word actually, but but it works in this context. Uh, how to be more aware of what kind of food you are putting into yourself and how that can change, uh, perhaps, um, the um, development of, of intuition as we've, as we've just been talking about it. So I'm wondering if you, if you might sort of, uh, for our listeners, kind of, kind of uh, describe this idea of garbage in, garbage out, um, in the context of your understanding of intuition, as you just explained it a few minutes ago. Okay, so Malcolm's talking about um, your intuitive brain doesn't, in my opinion, um, it doesn't necessarily weigh things as this is more real than that. Um, one of the reasons why symbolic magic was so important is because the monkey brain at that level doesn't necessarily distinguish between symbols and reality. Mm -hmm. So stories are just as powerful to it as what it actually experiences. And because stories can have pure narrative form and no distractions and, and every detail in there actually contributes to the end that combination can make it seem cleaner and more real than the messier reality you deal with. Yes. So um, Malcolm was specifically talking about, you know, music that's all about angry and how much the world's out to get you will make you feel like the world is out to get you. So be aware and balance that. Be aware that most things are a lot of communications. Well, it's really easy to make the argument that all communication is designed to manipulate you to some level at, at the, you know, at the most basic level, there's no way to get the thought out of your head into someone else's head without putting it in there, without manipulating it in there somehow. Right. Um, but most people are manipulating you for their ends, not yours. And this goes to, uh, a musician who likes playing his songs that have certain themes to get people in certain moods, attract more people that are attracted to those moods. Um, but they can put you in specific moods with music. If you're watching TV and all the TVs or all the movies you see are about government conspiracies, you're going to start needing a tinfoil hat because you're going to start seeing conspiracies everywhere. Yes. So within that, you know, balance it. If you want, if you want to be happy, listen to happier stuff. Read happier stuff. But more important to me is plug into the real world. Go ahead and take a look out there. Right. Um, but you have to be a little bit conscious about it because everyone thinks the world is full of crappy drivers, but it's not. It's just that you only notice the crappy ones. The the hallmark <laughs> of being a good driver is no one notices you. <laughs> And Awfully good point. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so look at the hundred of people driving that you didn't notice, and, and um, you know, you're going to read in the papers about every horrible thing that happened in the entire right. world. Um, but look at all of your neighbors and never killed anybody, 
you know, they don't have anybody buried in their basement. And, and that's the majority of the world. Talk to good people, keep good people in your life. Um, that's uh, one, one of the, the smartest, healthiest things I ever did was volunteer with search and rescue. Because for the like six or how many years, uh, probably 10 years before that, working in jail, I didn't know any 18-year-olds who weren't criminals. Mm. I, wow. I literally did not know anyone in that age bracket. And working with kids in that age bracket who were heroes probably saved my soul. That's, that's a really interesting point. Is, so, Well, that, I mean, just the word, just the phrase you just used, saved your soul, speaks to the, the crucial importance of, of, of the right impression food how important it is. Actually, and, and it brings up a, a point that I hadn't thought about while reading the book, but um, you know, our, our teacher used to, used to say that, uh, that garbage in, garbage out, but let's say you have 10 years of bad, impre- of, of, of seeing only 18 year olds who are criminals and how they, how they behave. And then you go into a new situation and very quickly see that not all 18-year-olds behave that way. The, um, mm-hmm. his, his, his assertion was, to test, was that, oh, that new impression who doesn't have to last for 10 years. You don't have to, you don't have, to have an equal balance. The, in, the, the intuitive capacity can, um, I don't know if, uh, can, can respond creatively, if you will, or, or balance things without there being an equal set of impressions. I mean, there are, there are intense impressions, individual intense impressions. There are longer duration, uh, repeated, less intense impressions. But all that stuff can be balanced, um, he would say, with one powerful positive. or positive or, or um, antithetical, yeah. yeah, countervailing impression. So, um, so, uh, so comment on that. really and, smart. <laughs> I certainly thought so. <laughs> and I, but I think his point is well taken, and, that, and that's, the point, that's the thing I wanted to bring up here. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. It, um, so if, riffing on that a little bit, one of the, um, and as you guys have probably figured out, I can't think anything in a straight line. So bear with me for a second. Um, if you're healthy, if your intuition is healthy, if your mind is healthy, um, then it, it doesn't stick with, or it doesn't say there's only one way for things to be. Yeah, that that's actually a really toxic way to to look at the world, um, and so it just takes one counterexample to open up that possibility and everything between those two possibilities. Exactly. Um, second thought, yeah. The second thought that ties into that though is if you take one of those impressions as part of your identity, then you become really robust to against new information yes yes um the and the 
third piece. What was the third piece that all tied into that? Um, no, I think that's it. it well, it's one of those that we have some people who are unhealthy have mechanisms against that working. And that takes a lot of work to help them with. And most of them don't want to be helped. It makes the world more stable. Well, I think you mentioned that in the section on homeostasis and you, you alluded to that before that people tend to want to recreate what's familiar. You know, the old adage, mm -hmm. better the devil I know than, uh, you know, the, the, the yeah. angel who might, who might whack me. Yeah. <laughs> And and, and yeah. so it's kind of it's interesting to, I mean, it's, there's two things here because I, I noticed this with uh, spiritual practice in general. Uh, you know that there's a challenge for a lot of people. They don't realize that it's possible to be different. And mm -hmm. and then when you when you scratch that, then you get into what you're describing it then people don't want to be different. They want to kind of clutch to their identity because uh, that identity is, has served them well. And that, that maybe that, oh, in their minds, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely. In, in their narrative, let's say, I think that the, maybe yeah. the, the, the currents of their narrative tend to want them to reinforce that. And so, people put themselves in the same situations or consume the same uh, 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 media sources that reinforce this point of view and feel self-justified and righteous that, hey, I'm right, I'm right. There's um, a, a lot of people, everyone is way more fluid than they want to believe. And when people start investing in that, um, I am me, you know, and, and they have this idea of themselves as this unchanging crystal. It, it cuts off almost all of their adaptability, almost all of their survival traits. It's, if, if this was true, you know, if I am who I am was actually true, we wouldn't have moods. Um, it wouldn't matter if you had coffee or not in the morning. It, it just, but people lock into, and when you lock into that, then you can't, you know, if all 18 year olds are bad and I know this because, and this is who I am, it, it, our, our fluidity, our ability to adapt and change is, is one of the human superpowers. We're really good at it until we decide not to let ourselves. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, li I like this and I liked the phrase you use, I am who I am. Um, and it, because that reminded me of, of, of a, of a phrase that, uh, that uh, uh, our teachers used to use, which is, I am that I am. And that just, that just opens things up. In, That's in, subtle. Yeah. So, so, but the other point I wanted, I wanted to uh, draw out again w w that you just made a few minutes ago um, was this flexibility thing so that um, if, if the world and our choices are not binary, yes, no, good, bad, et cetera. But if they're uh, a range of choices between two poles of good and bad, or yes and no, mm -hmm. then that's, that's, a, that's this important aspect of, of the freedom that I, think, that I think you were talking about. 
And I think that's, that's, yeah. you know, that's really a wonderful way to put, to, to visualize it. At least I've used it to visualize to myself um, that, that, oh, not only do I have to not occupy either end, I could occupy one point or many points actually yeah. in between. Yeah. In, in, I can't remember who said it, but uh, in an infinite universe, you're wrong. <laughs> and, well, I haven't heard that. That's good. I, I like that. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there, there are things I believe, but I could be completely wrong about them. And that gives me the freedom and flexibility to change my mind when I get new information. Yeah. I, I see yeah, a new thing. Yeah, you, I think you, somewhere in the book, you, you uh, make, make that point, And I, I really appreciated that. It's like always having, always being, holding the willingness to, change and never assuming that anything is true that everything is a everything's a hypothesis or everything is approximate yeah the, the best guess we have now with the information that we have yeah and some of the information may not be true so yeah i mean and that's it, we were talking uh, you know earlier about um uh, before we started recording about mystical positivism and that's that, that's really that principle is, uh, you know, for us is a an important way to navigate any of this realm we're talking about. Uh, you know, as we penetrate the mystical or the mystery of just like being, being, being for its own sake, uh, we have a lot of hypotheses. But the minute we park and say this is truth, then uh, we're kind of stuck, and and you lose that flow. Absolutely. So uh, one of the be one, horrible to be right. <laughs> <laughs> it is horrible to be right. I'll, I'll, I'll I say that. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good response, man. That was, that was, <laughs> uh, I like that. That was very good. Well, one of the things that uh, that I like about the book is um, a point that uh, actually the friend who who recommended your work to us. Uh, has has been fond of saying, and maybe he got it from you, but the but it, the it's the idea that human beings are anti-fragile, and um, and that Web. what's that? I'm sorry, Mr. Most uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb wrote a book called oh. Anti-Fragile. Ah, uh, okay, Taleb, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah, and 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 you use that. I mean, you quote you quote him, Absolutely. but 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 it is a a kind of a the, the phrase is a distillation of a lot of the stuff that you use in your book. In other words, the way to grow is to challenge yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obvious if we look at it in like if a muscle is weak, the way you increase its strength is to challenge it. Um, but in other realms, it's not it's not exactly common knowledge that that's going to be the way to proceed. So it, it, talk about that a little bit because I think that's an that's a really crucial aspect of of uh, living in the deep brain. It. Um, wow, I wanted I wanted to go. I want to go political for a second with safe spaces. Mm -hmm. it, go, go for it. 
the idea that we, we, we understand if you take a baby cow and lock it away in the dark and feed it nothing but milk and never challenge it, and never let its muscles, we create veal. And veal is super tasty, but it's cruel. And we know right. that it's bad. And then we have people begging to mentally be treated like veal. And I can't wrap my hand around that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I think that uh, some of these concepts come up in uh, 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 Jonathan, Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, Coddling the, uh, the American Mind. The American Mind. Have you, have you run across that? I haven't, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's, Is he it's, the guy that did the, uh, what, the, the virtue, seven virtues or? No, no, no. He's, uh, he, he and a co-author wrote this book on, it, which covers a lot of this concept of, of, uh, the safe spaces, the frag, the, the, the fragileness of people today. And, um, actually one of the, not Jonathan, but his co-author, um, I think, um, came to this because he, he had practiced or been uh, trained in neuro-linguistic programming. And there's all these things that, all these mm -hmm. modes of thinking that are really destructive, like um, among other things, catastrophizing, you know, like, so if something, if you think about yeah. something, it's gotta be the worst thing in the world, which of course we're seeing the uh, evidence of that right now in the uh, media um, yeah. uh, with the coronavirus is so, those kinds of modes of thought are really destructive and you use neuro-linguistic programming to uh, get yourself out of them. And the point of the book was that in fact, these are the very things that our uh, younger generation are kind of training themselves in, you know, catastrophizing uh, fr fragility, you know, where, uh, you know, if someone doesn't agree with you, then mm -hmm. an existential threat. And, and so they, they talk about um, all of these, issues that you're describing. But the thing that I was thinking about in conjunction with some of what you described is uh, Jonathan Haidt described this movement called free range kids. And there's a movement now with people, mm -hmm. with people who they'll let their kids like walk home from school by themselves or go, go for walks for two miles in the city by themselves. And they're, they're basically mm -hmm. training their kids to be problem solvers and to deal with unexpected circumstances uh, as a way to, produce robustness. And of course, people are horrified yeah. by this in the modern world because everyone's trying to make things as safe and as predictable as possible for their children. But it doesn't produce robustness. It produces veal. Yeah. It, it's, oh, God, we all walked to school when we were kids. Yeah. If, if an adult walked with us, it's because we were being punished. <laughs> right. Right. And frankly, I think there were just as many dangers out there as there are today. It's just there wasn't uh, a I, media that accentuates everything. Yeah, I think there were actually probably technically more. We just didn't know about them. It's, yeah. it, it, going back to the, the, what did you call it, the feeding your, your input, your input uh, food. Yeah, impression, uh, impression, impression food. Impression food. Yeah, it's it. One thing I try to remind myself when I see anything on on the internet or when I on the rare occasions when I see the news or when I listen to news on the radio, is I'm going to see the worst two percent of everything. I, I mean, you know, right, left, 
um, whatever, I'm going to see the worst 2% that the media can dig up from 7 billion people. It, it's not representative. It's not real. It is just a blatant attempt to manipulate me so I keep my eyes on there and listen to the advertising. Yeah. Um, I remember that I tend to be okay. And that's a good thing to, that's a good message right now because uh, I even, you know, with the bursting out of the, this coronavirus issue that there's a real seductive pull to want to read everything about it. And, uh, and what you're reading, you know, as you say, is uh, creates it's lots of people's agendas and lots of agitation and it doesn't actually speak to the immediate reality that we're living. No, it's the, the only reality that's impacted my life from that has been the people's reaction to it. Yeah. There, it's everything that I see as a second or third order um, interaction. It's not a primary interaction. So right. I'm, I'm curious and, and there's no way to, to know how things would have turned out another way. But if it didn't have a name and didn't have a label, would we have gone through this whole year and just thought, hmm, we had a pretty bad flu season this year? Yeah. So it, it might be worse than that, you know, uh, it, uh, and I'll, I'll, grant, I'll grant some of the caution. And yet at the same yeah. time, um, it's, you're right. You know, we, 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 if we didn't have a name for it, it might not have seemed like such a, a big thing. Yeah, and and we can't know. It's this could be the biggest thing ever. This could be nothing. Um, well, not nothing, nothing. But again, something that would have been hidden in the statistics of the bad flu season, and we can't know. Yeah. Until it all pans out. It's uh, we were talking about uh, Nicholas Taleb. One of his other rants was about naive interventionalism, which I loved. And that's when something something bad is happening, so we need to do something right now. We don't have enough information on what the right thing to do is, but that doesn't matter. We need to do something right now. Yeah. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Um, uh, the last uh, paragraph in your book is your dedication of the book to your late father. And... Um, mm -hmm. um, and you say, he taught me to be still in the woods. And yeah. uh, I think everything since then has flowed from the ability to simply be still. So I think that's an interesting thing to say when um, you yourself have said that you're known in the, uh, you know, the, um, the, the whole space of... Um, uh, is it self-defense? I don't know. I don't know how, how, what, what the, what the right sure. phrase is. Yeah, it's close enough. Um, and, um, and, and so I'd be interested to hear you talk about that because so, uh, I mean, you, you do at, at times in living in the deep brain speak about the importance of that in nature and not just in nature of being still. Um, but could you, I mean, if, if you want to bring your father into it, of course, oh. that's that's welcome, too. But but I, I just want to know about how you how important you conceive of that to be being still. Uh, let's see. Dad taught me to be quiet. Cause we 
we hunted a lot. Um, but the person I would actually want to bring in this is Kathy Jackson. Are you aware of her at all? No. I've heard the name, but um, no, not really. I don't know the work. Um, Kathy's a handgun instructor. She's uh, retired or semi-retired now. Um, really, really good thinker. Um, I attended one of her instructor development classes. She was doing a beta test and invited a bunch of, <laughs> she was very brave. She invited a bunch of um, harsh friends to to sit through the class. And um, one thing's in, in both the self-defense world and the handgun world, some of the best instructors out there are women and they have real trouble getting any kind of direct respect. Hmm. Um, people, guys think that just because they're guys, they already know how to shoot. You know, they already know how to fight. Um, there's, there's a lot of ego in that world. And I've seen some, some instructors like Kathy that are, are super brilliant, know their stuff inside out, and people ignore them just because they're female. Uh, so one of the other female instructors in attending the class asked uh, how to project authority because that's, that's a big issue. And Kathy said something I'm still wrapping my head around. She said authority comes from the essential stillness. Hmm. And, and those are two separate words. It's essential. It's got to be a part of you and stillness. And going back into every real leader I ever knew was calmer than everyone else around. Hmm. When everything was going to crap, the leader was the one that was still. Um, when you can control an entire room just by being still, you can, if you, when you can fight from stillness, it's not even human anymore. And that, so that, that stillness concept, uh, and a lot of that is, being in your sense is you're still because you're getting so much input from the universe. You're looking and smelling and hearing and feeling and not filtering it through your conscious mind. So I, I would, I would say that to me that the stillness is the expression of being in your intuitive brain more than almost anything. So it's, it's huge for me. And I'm still, ever since Kathy said that I'm still poking at how deep that goes yeah, I mean, stillness and, and poking at it for me is like trying to find that uh, ever deeper uh, places of stillness. And it seems like an ongoing process. But I get, I, Every, you know, yeah. That, now you made a comment earlier, which uh, kind of ties back to this about when the intuition is functioning, the self drops away. And yeah, I think then what I take from that is what's left is the stillness that we're talking about. It, one of the things, I know, I know I put this in there, but when you get to that real Satori moment, when you get into that just integrated, the second you notice you're in it, you lose it. That the becoming self-aware, or at least to me, reliably pulls me out of it, even when I never want to come out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. 
Oh no, that's I, I'm just going um, or, or like you know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> got it. Well, this brings up uh, you know uh, uh, one of the meditative ex. I think your meditation, your second meditation chapter uh, in the book uh, resembles some of the some of the meditation that we've you know uh, that I've done been doing um, was introduced to more than 40 years ago and is uh, you know central to to my life experience now uh, enfolded into it but but um but you make a point there in that chapter where you say uh, something like if you're developing a tool where you have to have special circumstances present to have that tool be useful then that's not a very useful tool and and so the, the the meditative stuff that that you know we're doing is it's actually meant to be done in the midst of daily life. And I've long wondered about the um, assertion, and I have many wonderful uh, friends in the Zen Buddhist world who are wonderful exemplars of the possibility of stillness, but they're the way they get there. Um, they say, uh, they tell me, is through the cultivation of stillness in a particular environment, which then, as I understand it, is supposed to seep into the midst of daily life. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on or comments on that, briefly. Yeah, I do. They aren't very nice thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's an old story, and I, I don't know what what tradition, but it was the Japanese meditation tradition, and someone had been certified as a as a master, mm-hmm. and decided to go out in the real world, building out there. It that stuff has to be useful in the real world, and the the hope that it's going, and it's a hope, it's not a plan is going to seep out under stress it's it's not you have to practice it under stress it's it's people people want magic to happen and most magic is just hard work so a, yeah i appreciate and that i'm, I'm not a not a big fan of doing things the easy way and then hoping that i've, I've had my training wheels on forever so let me let me go mountain biking now because i've got it it's going to seep over got it Oh, that's, that's, that's really helpful. It's uh, actually a good answer for this because it helps me understand the importance of a certain kind of stress in the practice that, and it can take different forms, but you got to put it to work in a way that's uh, uh, not a safe context or not a static context. Yeah. It, um, we do the same thing for, uh, well, for anything for physical defense. If you can't do moving, you can't do it. Mm. If you need a stationary target and you need to be stationary, you actually can't. And it, it doesn't matter where you're talking about shooting or punching or um, you have to be able to do it on a moving target while you yourself are moving or you're worthless. Yeah. Well, we have uh, come to the end of our time. What do you, th- what do you know about that? <laughs> It, it went by very that was quickly. Very quick. 
Yeah, yeah I am glad. I am glad to hear fun. you say it. Hey, hey, well, we, ditto. Well, we really enjoyed the uh, conversation. I appreciate you joining us on the Mystical Positivist. It's been it's been real a, a real uh, hoot for, for me. Uh, helpful. I mean, uh, that you know, there's some imagination scavengers. I'm going to use that yeah, one. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a, a great one. phrase, <laughs> and other yeah. things as well. But just um, just to um, share this time together has, yeah. has been uh, has been really sweet for me. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Rory Miller, author of Living in the Deep Brain, Connecting with Your Intuition. Rory Miller is a 17-year veteran of the Portland Metropolitan Correctional System. In 2008, Rory left his agency to spend over a year in Iraq with the Department of Justice ISATAP program as a civilian advisor to the Iraqi correction system. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and college varsities in judo and fencing. Roy is also the author of Meditations on Violence, a comparison of martial arts training and real-world violence. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Diana Rowan, author of The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within, published this year by New World Library. Diana Rowan is a creative alchemist and founder of the Brightway Guild, a virtual learning environment dedicated to transforming and inspiring a global community of creatives. The classical inquiry of what makes a good life has driven Diana from her youngest years, and sharing her hard-won discoveries with others is her mission. Having recovered from a soul-crushing case of stage fright and other challenges, Diana believes that by shining light on the darkness we fear, we can all become courageous purveyors of bright knowledge and live the good life. Diana was born in Dublin, Ireland, to college student parents, setting the stage for a lifetime of lively learning and seeking. Soon thereafter, her father became a diplomat for the Irish government, taking his family all over the world in a cosmopolitan pilgrimage. Respect for the arts has always been second nature in Diana's family, along with a deep streak of mysticism embodied by her astrologer mother. This unusual combination of intellectual seeking, cultural bridging, mystical opening, and artistic engagement are the hallmarks of Diana's life, whether that be in composing music, teaching, writing, or choosing a wine. Diana holds an MM in classical piano performance and a PhD in music theory. Tune in for that show on Saturday, March 28th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. 